I guess we should talk now. Yeah, I guess we should go. <laughs> this um, is uh, this is Bentley, and this is Samuel, and this is the Review podcast. podcast. And I haven't seen Do the Right Thing in a long, long time. And uh, I saw it actually at the end of a, a lark. You know, I'm a white guy from small town America. I was in Chicago in the summer of 1989, and I convinced a bunch of my fellow newspaper reporters from the Chicago Tribune, just a bunch of kids, to go to some suburban mall and sneak our way into a day of movies, right? What what more perfect description of me could you get? Like, I think the first movie was even a Disney re-release, like, you know, Jungle was Book or something like Batman stupid. or something no, in 89? No, no, Disney, no. No, 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 no. It wasn't Batman. We started with Disney. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was in there somewhere. <laughs> I forget what the third one was. But the last one of the day that we see, like, starting at 10 o'clock. So we're already wired because we've seen three movies. Boom, boom, boom. And all you've eaten is, like, popcorn and yeah, soda at this yeah. point. Yeah, and the fourth movie was Do the Right Thing. I came out of that movie just feeling like I'd been hit with a shovel. And we just watched it on its 30th anniversary. And I feel like I've been hit with a shovel. It has lost none of its power. 30 years later, uh, this is my third time seeing the film. I saw the film uh, once in high school. I was uh, ordered to the auditorium along with the rest of my senior class, which was only about 70 people. I went to a small, private, mostly white school where our headmaster, Mr. Harvey, shout outs to Mr. Harvey, uh, always staying conscientious, always asking us to expand our minds, made all of us watch do the right thing and discuss it afterwards and you know mr harvey was uh italian american he he had grown up in new york and had more empathy than probably anyone i ever met outside my family at that point in my life he 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 made us watch it because he knew that even if we didn't get it then we would get it later that it would become important did he say anything about how it hit him do you remember anything he said about it he talked about his own experiences yeah. of discrimination because he was old enough to remember when Italians were discriminated right. against. So right. he could not, he very deliberately did not speak to the black experience because that's not something he knew. Mm-hmm. But he did know discrimination. And uh, he talked about how he does not, he did not know the black experience, but he knew what it was to be looked down on and spat on and, and considered to be less. So that's what's really interesting in this movie um danny aiello does a fantastic job if you read the imdb they say that uh spike wanted de niro but he would not have been the right character uh because de niro is too strong you can't make de niro into uh somebody who has that insecurity Mm -hmm. of having been discriminated against whereas aiello is that vulnerable you can see a little bit of vulnerability he doesn't ever talk about it but that's why the wall is so important to him Mm -hmm. right this whole fight in the movie over who is revered on the wall so he's revering uh the people who made italian americans acceptable to white culture to wasp people right (laughs) you know it was sinatra it was all of those movie actors on the wall that kind of boxers, broke, boxers that broke through uh, the discrimination that Italians faced for you know a good 50, 60 years in this country. Yeah. So you know, Aiello is protecting the people who have made him now, quote unquote, white. Mm-hmm. 
right? It's, it's, I saw it a second time in uh, college mm-hmm. as well. Um, I, I think it might be for my cinema studies class. And by that point, we still hadn't gotten to uh, Ferguson. We Black still Lives Matter. had not gotten mm-hmm. to Black Lives Matter. But this stuff, it, with the rise of social media and the visibility that social media mm-hmm. lends you, we were starting to become more conscientious, even out there in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Y- you you have a, a, a global reach now for these things. And Ferguson happened when I took my year off of college mm-hmm. at the very beginning mm-hmm. of what would have been my senior year, but I took off to live in Baltimore. And where? Where... Yeah, the, the the riots, the protests of, of Baltimore were happening about two months before I moved out and the, the murder of Freddie Gray took place. And I remember serving coffee at Starbucks to National Guardsmen, to police officers in full SWAT gear. And it is different to see a place that you have called home, even for just a few months, be torn apart by this anger the same anger that's displayed in the climax of this film this anger that while it might feel good in the moment does lasting damage to that community and that neighborhood and those scars are going to be born forward and that's kind of uh, it's what we were talking about as we were finishing watching the film my father and I was Spike Lee is a brilliant director in that he does not give you any easy answers. Uh, he is not here to tell you that violence is unnecessary and and peace and brotherly love is the only way forward. He's also not here to tell you that these things have these these things have consequences. Violence has consequences, and and even the destruction of of property it it is pales in comparisons to the loss of Radio Rahim's life. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's messy. Who starts what? Who's responsible for what? You know, who, who's in the wrong? Who's in the right? Everyone's kind of wrong. Everyone's kind of right. You know, if you have the backstory that we've implied between Sal and, and the pictures on the wall, well, of course he'd be defensive of the pictures. But at the end of the day, that pales in comparison to Radio Rahim's life. And then that community turns around and begins, it looks like they're going to direct that same physical anger onto Sal and his sons. And their lives may very well be in danger. And then Mookie redirects that into violence against property. And obviously property is not nearly worth the the value of human life. But Sal is still wounded and Sal's not going to return to that location. No. And that community is now poorer for both the loss of Radio Rahim's life, which is by far the greater loss, but also the loss of Sal and what he brought to that community because he's leaving. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a movie about loss. It's a movie about you know the 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 consequences of of our actions and and I love that little exchange between uh, mother sister and the mayor at the very end. I was gonna wonder if the block was still here. We're still here, right? And that'll have to be enough for now. Well, so he does a pretty good job writing those older characters. They're clearly people who grew up in the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, they're kind of the wise uh, fathers, right? Both the female and the male character. She clearly has PTSD. Yes. At the end of 
this riot where Sal's is burning and he, Spike, has literally shown water hoses yeah. being trained on black people yeah. the same way firemen in the South trained water hoses on African-American teenagers uh, during the Civil Rights Movement to, to disperse them. You know, there's a lot in there that Spike is calling back to. And it's powerful, and yet it's also clearly the work of a young person. And uh, Spike is about 10 years older than I am, and I saw it as a young person without any experience in this kind of an environment. And there was a lot about it that I couldn't figure out when I saw it in 1989. And I can see now, after all of the things that we have eyewitnessed in the last five, six years, you know, that it's missing a little bit of texture that we've now all seen if our eyes and our ears are open, if we're actually empathetic and listening to the other communities. There's actually a much deeper sense of this problem and how long it's gone on. In 1989, this came out of nowhere. Now, you know, I studied history in college. It's been my profession and a big part of my work for the last 20 years. And, you know, I'm really happy that now, in 2019, we're talking about white supremacy and who gets to be defined as white. You know, at one point, Jews were not white, but now they are. At one point, Italians were not white, but now they are. You know, as this keeps shifting to try to maintain white supremacy. And, you know, this depiction of a racial riot on screen, on the one hand, was really out of uh, the character of the 80s, right? We had had racial conflict in the 50s. We had had big race riots in the 60s. The 70s were full of violence. You know, New York City was a mess in the 70s. But in the 80s, things were quiet. And we could spend another hour talking about this just from a historical standpoint. And yet, Spike was telling us things that were happening in his community that we didn't know because there wasn't social media then. And even in 1989, it was starting to bubble back to the surface. I remember there were massive riots in Miami during the week of the Super Bowl at the beginning of 1989. And that just seemed like, whoa, you know, what's going on? Something That's just weirdness down there. And then this movie hits and, you know, then we get into uh, the riots in L.A. in 1991. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of conflict in the 90s. Uh, there's a much higher rate of incarceration of people from the African-American community. Yeah. And, you know, there's been more outright racial conflict in this country than there has not. Right. If you look at 400 years of history of people forcibly enslaved and then being discriminated against even after they were technically legally free, there's been violence 90% of the time. Yeah, it, and, and Spike's imagery is the imagery of, of a young director. It's not subtle. He's, he has Sal drive up in a white Cadillac. You know, he's, <laughs> right. he's not here to... He, he knows he has to paint this in broad strokes for, you know, the Chicago Tribune kids who want to go see this. Right. And some of that yeah. I really like. Like, when he finally has everybody, like, say racist things right into the camera yeah. about another community, yeah. another ethnicity, yeah. that was really powerful then and remains really powerful now. Yeah. Just, but, of course, guess what? Now you can see it on 
Facebook. Yeah, now people are just commenting that now stuff. Now people on... just say it out loud anyway. I, this is a tangent I don't want to get too too far off of, of the very important stuff that Spike's talking about. But there was a theory, and I remember reading about this in some small circles, where uh, Facebook was on the rise, and 4chan was kind of on the ebb at that specific moment. And uh, I remember there was a push by uh, Blizzard Entertainment. I'll relate this back. Blizzard Entertainment to make everyone on their forums have to use their real names rather yes, than I remember that. Um, yeah. their screen names. Mm-hmm. And people were like, well, if people use their real names, their real identities, you know, we'll see the a lower – these people won't be as hateful online. They won't leave these anonymous hateful comments. People have – it's, they've they've doubled down. Yeah. They they yeah. they uh they say the worst things possible on their Twitter, and it's just their real, just their real faces, yeah. their real identities. That yeah. we have, the 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 barriers of of civility that we took comfort in for so long. Spike's already telling you in 1989, those don't exist. Right. Those are an That's artifice. Right. They're a yeah. nice little dressed up thing. At the end of the day. A little bit of friction is going to make all of that fall away. Blow up. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember in 1989 when he balances completely and equitably Martin Luther King Jr. with Malcolm X. That was a pretty radical statement. Mm -hmm. Right? Him juxtaposing those two on equal footing. Because, of course, at that point, you know, MLK was the acceptable... African-American leader and Malcolm X was just too dangerous. And we had just gone through a fight to get Martin Luther King Day a national holiday. That was a fierce fight in our culture, uh, which actually is replicated in this movie in the fight for representation on the wall. Right. I mean, it's some of this seems silly today. No, Spike has made a very interesting movie in that it's a day in the life you know, so he can get into some of the really petty arguments and the little details, things like who sweeps the front sidewalk, right? Yeah. Some of the stuff compared to the loss of a life just seems ridiculous, except it's not. It's all connected. And the fight over whose pictures are on the wall is echoed by the fight we had just had as a society, as a government. Do we honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? We just barely got that passed into a federal holiday. And so any discussion of Malcolm X was like, no, no, that's too far. Yeah. And now it seems pretty innocuous. Yeah. In 2019, to see him putting those two on equal footing compared to all the other crap that's going on, you're like, um, yeah, I would love to see people respect either one of those guys, hopefully both. But we are so deep into the mud that that those two having influence over our society, MLK and Malcolm X, that seems like a long time ago. Yeah. It's a it's a creation myth, it's a fable, but uh one of the things that uh Chuck D cites as an inspiration to create Public Enemy, who provides so much of the soundtrack to this film, was he was handing out might have been like a public speaking thing or maybe even a rap show. And it mentions uh, Malcolm X and he was handing it to some younger kids. They didn't know who Malcolm X was. Right. And and uh, whether or not that story is true or not is is irrelevant because the sentiment was true. You know, he... he Chuck I would D, believe that. Yeah, yeah. Chuck D and, and, and Flava Flav and, and Terminator X, who are comprising the members of Public Enemy, they were 
right there, I mean, it's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that Spike Lee makes them so central to this film. Not obviously they are the music that Radio Raheem is playing, but there are other characters in the background who are wearing Public Enemy shirts. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah I spotted yeah. at least two during the riot. Well, and you and I love the fact that one character is always carrying around a Black Panther comic book. Yeah, yeah. So Spike's... <laughs> so we've come now to, you know, to this world where Black Panther actually gets to be its own movie yeah. and is a gigantic success. So... It's weird to feel like in some ways we've gone really far forward. And this movie in 1989 is the first date of the Obamas. Yep. Okay. So we've made gigantic progress and yet we are still stuck on that street corner on that hot day of people drawing lines this is my territory, this is your territory, this is my group, this is your group, don't cross. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I think you see the progress we've made in some spheres with Spike finally being recognized by the Academy this year. Yep. But Spike also knows and and was clearly quite, you know, eloquent in his speech where he's like, okay, you gave me an award, that's nice. That's just, you know, that's window dressing. Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, Black Panther made a whole ton of money but how many, you know, little assholes on Twitter are there who hate it just because it's a black cast and black creatives? Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I bet if we talked with Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther, he'd probably say, he'd probably point back to do the right thing as being formative for him. You know, he, I mean, uh, I don't think we've ever, we, I don't know, have you ever seen Fruitvale Station? Which I is have. Coogler's? Yeah. I have. Yeah. Which is a serious take on this same kind of thing. So one of the things that really jumped out at me watching, rewatching. I haven't seen Fruitvale. I gotta see Fruitvale. One of the things that jumped out at me tonight, rewatching Do the Right Thing on its 30th anniversary, is just how theatrical it is. And so when I say this is made by a young person, maybe Spike had an awareness of that in that he doesn't quite have the texture of living the life of somebody like the mayor character, uh, but he can at least set these voices up on a stage, you know, in a theatrical way where, where most of the action happens like within two blocks. Some of these people lean really hard into stereotypes like Mookie's girlfriend, you know, the Puerto Rican, Rosie, is great, but man, there's some stuff that's very stereotypical. And the music really jumped out at me this time, where, you know, when he brings it down, when he's trying to make a point, there's a lot of beautiful kind of classic mid-century jazz. I mean, the American songbook, stuff that sounds like Gershwin wrote it for Porgy and Bess, Mm -hmm. right? Which is one of the first great African-American stories that breaks big in American culture in the 20th century. Uh, Porgy and Bess is a beautiful musical. Uh, it produced the song Summertime, which has been covered thousands of times. And man, when, when we get to the quiet moments and do the right thing, it's like he's saying, I want this to be this generation's Porgy and Bess, yeah. which is a really big reach. That's a huge grab for a young guy. This is Spike's third movie. Yeah. It does have such a fascinating place, uh, sense of place and sense of geography. And you really, by the end of the film, have a great idea of the layout of the block. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a very weird comparison, but follow me here. It actually reminds me of Die Hard, where you never lose track of where <laughs> okay. Bruce Willis is in, that, that in, in geography yeah. in relation to where sure. everything else is. Sure. So I think that speaks to the scale 
that Spike Lee is working on, but also the incredible direction that he brings to the film. And letting so many of his actors just kind of go. I mean, if you read the IMDb trivia, lots you know, of a lot of improvisation, a lot of, improv. lot of just, okay, here's where we need to get to by the end of the scene, and let's just go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where he lacks the knowledge and experience of, of characters like the mayor mm-hmm. and characters like Mother Sister. Yeah. He, or the Greek chorus on the corner. Or the Greek chorus on Love the corner. Love those guys. He just turns it over to them. Yeah. And just says, look, yeah. I can't... And that takes a lot of confidence as a director. Young, old, you know, any level. Yeah. For him to say, here's... I wrote this. I produced this. I'm directing it. Mm-hmm. Your turn. Yeah. Like, that... Yeah. Amazingly confident for, for mm-hmm. a young director. Mm-hmm. And speaks to the fact that he was confident enough in his overall vision mm-hmm. to let the moment-to-moment interactions happen organically. And they do. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to shout out, like, Spike Lee is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a great actor. But he is a great Mookie. He is, <laughs> he is a he great is, Mookie. I don't think you could have cast anyone else as Mookie. Because so much of this movie, I, I made the joke when we were watching it, so much of this movie is Mookie reacting to the events of Spike's film, of, of him oh, yeah, just kind yeah. of like rolling his eyes or like looking through the top of his skull at people. Yeah. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of humor in Spike Lee's very deadpan facial expressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so we could spend an hour talking just about that character. There's so much in this movie. We could do a four hour podcast. Yeah. Uh, you could do a, a well, whole hour on the two main characters, right? Sal and Mookie and yeah. how they're similar. Right, because at the end, when Sal is literally throwing money at Mookie, you know, Mookie has said through the whole movie, his whole motivation is just money. He's just trying to work. He yells at other people just running around the block, get a job. Right? He yells at people from his own community, get a job. But he's also not, you know, really working that hard. Doesn't have <laughs> the most difficult work ethic in the world. Um, but he's telling, you know, Bug to calm down. I mean, he literally begs him. Because he can kind of see the way things are going. He's got a feel for the street. Uh, it's a really hot day. You know, he pleads with him after the first interaction between Bug and Sal. You know, don't come back for a week. You know, go cool off. Don't come back. Yeah. And, and the whole thing happens because Bug keeps at it. Yeah. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson as the love master supreme. The word of the day is chill. Yeah, no, it's, word of it's, the day is chill. And he stays in that studio the whole time. Yeah. Uh, he does not use his microphone to whip up the crowd. Nope. That's interesting. There's some great pantomiming by Samuel on this film. There's some great <laughs> great scenes where he's just in the background and you've got to look in the corner of your eye at what he's doing physically because he's, he's, yeah. he's yeah. just... He's, He's done a good job. He's almost like a second Greek chorus to the film. He's, yes, he he's, is. He's two yes, Greek he choruses. Yes, um, and Totoro is menacing from the get-go. He yeah. looks like he's trouble from the very moment they show up in the morning uh, in the white caddy. Uh, and, of course, he proves to be yeah. somebody who is a bully because of his own insecurities. He's as close as we get to a discussion of any kind of uh, discrimination against uh, Italian-Americans, although it's pretty light. But, you know, he's got a pretty interesting scene with Aiello that is half improvised. So Totoro does a fantastic job as, you know, a a kind of a little cell of unrest Mm -hmm. in the middle of this very lightly balanced uh, environment. And I like him. You know, he's unsettling from the moment you see him. 
And then you get the guy who's driving through in his Cadillac convertible, and that scene is just silly, you know? I mean, that guy, the Italian guy, yeah, who, yeah. who says, don't spray the water on my car. And that whole scene that goes almost 10 minutes is a cartoon compared to what comes in the last 30 minutes. Yeah. So you you kind of wish that Spike would let some of that other stuff go, although... I guess, I, I, I'm sort of talking against myself now, but, you know, in 1989, it didn't look like there were any gigantic problems, right? I mean, Jesse Jackson had run for president in 1988. Yeah. There was some sign of progress. There was nothing really overtly uh, wrong to uh, protest about, right? Yeah. There were protests against apartheid in South Africa. but, but That's terms, over there. That's over there. In terms of civil rights in this country... Uh, you know, there there was a growing black middle class. Uh, the drug problem was there for everybody. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of interesting how the first two-thirds of this movie, it almost feels like Spike is trying to find something to spark. Now, maybe he's just doing that to um, tease us. Yeah, maybe it's like the first few flicks of a lighter. It doesn't catch right. quite. Right. Um, and I think... I mean, just in what you just talked about, there's like three different ways we could take the discussion. Yep. I think uh, there's a great irony at the end of the film that we were talking about where the whole place is burning down and uh, Fight the Power comes back. This time it's it's non-diegetic sound. It's mm-hmm. not actually coming from the boombox. It's just pumped yeah. in yeah. as as, envir- as a non-environmental sound. And you kind of get the irony there where... It's like, okay, you burn down a pizza shop. You're really fighting the power. Yeah, what, how is that fighting the power? But by the same token, Totoro uses every little bit of his power to make everyone's lives, especially the black people's yes, lives, you bet. way off, more awful. And that is the power you that fight against. That is the power, that's right. Even though mm-hmm. he's just a little pizza guy, yeah. you can't let him get away with that. Because he is now considered, quote-unquote, white. Yes. And that's the whole point to white supremacy... All the way back to Bacon's Rebellion. Yep. Look it up on Wikipedia. Read about it. It is the first time that there's a political settlement in English North America where the rich white people tell the poor white people, well, you're white, which means you're with us, and everybody of color is outside the circle of power. And so once Italian-Americans of Totoro's generation, you know, grow up, feeling like they're white, they're inside the circle. You're right. They can use any little piece of manipulation and harassment. And Sal remembers when he was not considered white. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he's much more uh, favorable to some members. I mean, again, we can spend another hour talking about the gradations of this, you know, because Sal, he kind of goes back and forth. That character, you know... He's very complex. He's yelling at some people... Because he, they, he defines them as a threat to what he's built, mm-hmm. right? Just a few individuals threaten him, and so he's very aggressive to them. But most everybody else in the neighborhood, their money to him, it's yeah. sort of like a, a, you know, a realistic version of Mr. Krabs, yeah. <laughs> you know. But you can see how he's like, well, wait a minute, but these people put food on our table. I've been here for twenty five years. I'm not leaving. You know, he gives uh, money to people. He's good to the kids. Uh, he do- he gives money to the mayor. You know, 
so in other words, I also, it's, like, I also like the implication that he's not necessarily very good at making pizza. No, because, actually, I, none of that looked appetizing to me. Yeah, no, but I love that his son's like, you know, why don't we move to our neighborhood? He's like, the first thing out of his mouth is, there's already a lot of pizzerias there. And the implication is, you're not going to compete with them. You're not good enough. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, look how he treats Jane. Like, like you yeah. know, she is... And again, Spike doesn't give you any easy answers there. She says, you know, his his banter with her is totally innocent. Spike's character, Mookie, is like, he's lecherous. He's coming after you. And the movie... Just kind of goes, make of that what you will. Yeah. Because it's not going to matter in 20 minutes when this place is burning. <laughs> right. Um, but right. I, 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 I'd love to touch on, briefly if we could, the strain, and we've kind of been talking around this, the strain of hypocrisy that just about every character has. Every character has some sort of essential contradiction within themselves that the movie doesn't really resolve. Exactly. The movie just says, um, like Mookie's yelling at people to get a job. Mookie does not do his job very well. Right. But see, it's, got... it's about that line again. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what the authenticity is on the inside. Mookie is on the inside because he has a job with the white yeah. business. Yeah. And so he can out... turn around and yell, get a job. Yeah. And bugging out is is yelling about all this stuff that matters. And, you know, we got to fight the power and, and all these big causes. And someone scuffs his shoe. And that's all he cares about. And, yeah. and suddenly his whole <laughs> anger is redirected. Like right. it's – and, and – you know, uh, there, there's Very so many. Yeah, there's so many characters who have these built-in hypocrisies that make them very human. You've got the mayor who clearly has this very real pain within him from something in his past. Mm. He 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 has failed peoples that he has loved. Yeah, um, he has hurt people. Uh, he seems to be pretty friendless you know i like yeah. the implication that he's proclaimed himself the mayor of this block and mm. and interacts with everyone because maybe no one would interact with him otherwise, otherwise yeah. unless he he's, forces himself in he there. forces himself into a mythic uh, role yeah and then he saves a kid's life and he saves a kid's life and you know he's he he is a drunkard you know like yeah. that you can't the kids who are mean to him are awful and jerks but they're also not necessarily wrong about him being a drunk who just right. stumbles around and 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 it's 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 messy. It's complicated. Spike is not going to give you any easy answers. Well, it's still very theatrical too. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of speechifying in this movie. A lot of mon- like, but Spike even calls himself on his monologuing. You know, one of the characters says, "You're just going to keep sitting there monologuing, or are you going to yeah. do something?" Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, some of the things that. Seemed a little false in 1989, or still there, but we've been overtaken by the truth of this. And even though some of these disputes do seem small in this one day, what we've learned from great historians, from the dialogue that social media allows, from people like Tanahisi Coates. Shout outs, man. Right? That that fighting one pizzeria actually is fighting the power because there's been this whole economic system. There's a reason why the African-American community has been ghettoized in urban centers, right? Because of the uh, systematic discrimination uh, against them by banks. You know, they they had deed restrictions on them, especially after World War II. That the discrimination is large, medium, and small to preserve white supremacy. And it has been going on for decades. And again, boy... Do the right thing hit me like a ton of bricks in 1989 because it came out of nowhere. People weren't talking about this. I wasn't thinking about it. And now, 
it's come down like a ton of bricks watching it tonight because those issues that it talks about are everywhere. Yep. And and it's only become more relevant with time. I think Spike is very... I think he's carved out a, a very controversial space for himself in, in the conversation. I think he wants it that way. Mm-hmm. But I would almost say... Like, no offense to Spike Lee, who I think is a great director, but people focusing on his controversies and him saying things and getting in these fights with other celebrities is just noise to distract you from the messages that he's giving you in his films. That's, that's, it's much easier for you to read a, a news article about him getting in a Twitter fight with someone mm. than to rewatch Do the Right Thing. This is a hard movie to watch. It's very difficult to watch. Yeah. And, and, you know. I I salute him and I salute his efforts and and I just hope we keep getting more great films from him as as time well, goes on. He, uh, he is so prescient in this movie that in 1989 he has characters talking about the polar ice caps melting. Yeah, <laughs> so, shout out to Spike for calling global warming. <laughs> well, this is what I've been trying to tell you that we have known this for 30 years. The smart people. We're listening to the scientists and reading and thinking about this more than 30 years ago. And I did not remember that it was in this movie. And one of the guys in the Greek chorus on the corner talks about the polar ice caps melting. So we have no one to blame but ourselves. And Spike blames you too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go watch it, but it ain't going to be an easy night at the movies. Nope. Uh, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Review Podcast. Fight the power, people.